Hello world! Welcome to the show. Today we have a big show and with me I have Amy. Hello Amy, how are you? I'm very good, thank you Frank. Thank you for having me on the show. It's good to be back as a, as a co-host um, and with an exciting new format. Oh, yeah, so the other day we were chatting together and uh, we were wondering like, hey, where, like that's the question people ask you, like what people ask you the most as a question when you do conferences and stuff. And it's always... <laughs> it's always, um, where do I put my data? Or what's the right place for my data? Or how many different data stores are there? And how do I choose between them? Um, exactly. It's honestly just a question that's always, always asked. Um, and sometimes having these things side by side and being able to say, right, I need a bit of that and a bit of that, and actually maybe these things can work together. Yeah, so we invited a bunch of specialists, different product manager on the product of Microsoft to try to clarify that question. So who did you bring it with you today, Amy? We have four experts who are going to really drill into their different um products and how we can use them so uh up first we'll have jeff um jeff king uh jeff tell us a little bit about what you're going to talk to us about yeah hi amy hi frank i'm going to talk about data lakes and some of the common practices and questions that we get with data lakes or uh, we get from customers about about how to implement their data lakes. so yeah I hope it's going to be useful Wonderful. After Jeff, we're going to have Vincent, and Vincent's going to be talking to us about Azure Data Explorer, Custo, and uh, how you can use it and when to use it to analyze your big data, your time series, telemetry, and logs. Amazing. That's cool. So that's two. We've got four experts. So up after that will be Mark. Mark, what are you going to chat to us about? I'm going to talk about Azure Cosmos DB, and we'll talk about uh, how Cosmos is different uh, as a scale-out database, uh, kind of the scenarios, why you would use it, and where you see it, or we see it being used today. Wonderful. And in case we forget, Mark's got a nice animated GIF just behind him so that we know exactly <laughs> what product he's related to. No um, and <laughs> and then uh, oh, last but certainly not least, we have Savine. Savine, tell us, what, what are you going to be chatting to us about? Well, the, the other three are going to tell you about different places where data can be in Azure. And I'm going to wrap it up with, if you need analytics on that data, how Synapse is that answer, any data you have, you can use Synapse to understand it and, and drive your business with analytics. Oh, nice. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I'm wearing my, uh, like, T-shirt for the occasion that unearths. <laughs> Want to make sure it was relevant. Uh, you know, <laughs> data, data, data. So I thought, you know, it was it makes sense for today. So very happy about that. Um, did you watch? Did you have a glimpse of the? Uh, there was a big announcement today about Microsoft, like sharing the new hardware and stuff. Did you watch that? Frank, I I have not. I've been too concerned about this show that I've all I've been doing is prepping, but I know I've got a lot to catch up on because you've already filled me in. But you know what? Tomorrow they are coming on Hello World. Oh, wonderful. Well, I'll, I'll watch Hello World tomorrow then. I'll get a lovely summary. Yeah, wonderful. But before that, now it's today. So let's start with our first speaker, who it is. 
So up first, um, we have Jeff King, uh, and he is going to touch you a bit about the uh, the features that he works on in the Azure Storage team. So, uh, Jeff, yeah, hi, tell thanks, us who you Andy. are. Yeah, I'm Jeff King. I'm a program manager on the Azure Storage team. I focus primarily in the world of big data and analytics, so that puts me squarely in the world of data lakes, since Azure Data Lake Storage 2 is a part of Azure Storage. Uh, and and my current currently my focus is is uh, you know working with um, customers and and in the areas of migrations right so uh, helping customers migrate and modernize their uh, current data estate whether it be on prem or wherever and into Azure Azure Data Land to, and and, uh, and predominantly they they want to they want to start in, in in the world of data links right they want to get out of the data silos and and into sort of data democratization, right? And that's where uh, that's where data lakes really shine. And uh, ADLS Gen two is a is obviously you know Azure's answer to um, to data lakes, right? So it's a real exciting time for us. Absolutely. And Jeff, you spent some time with Frank earlier in the week. Um, and before we play that video, though, that for you and Frank are in. Uh, um, make sure to get all your questions in the chat. Jeff's going to be in the chat. All our other experts are in the chat uh, whilst we show you this video. Awesome. Let's roll the video. So, Jeff, briefly, what's Data Lake? Uh, a data lake is a is a file system that's meant to store, you know, petabytes, exabytes worth of data uh, that you want to later do some like and analysis on, right? You want to run some big data analytics workloads on, and you want to do it at, at scale, uh, and you also want to do it in a cost-effective manner, right? We'll go okay. into the details of a data lake a little bit, you know, as we dive into this, but, you know, for, for a high level, that's probably good enough. Okay, good enough. <laughs> so where does it shine? Like, the, the, the question of today is where should I put my data in? So, like, where should I pick Azure Data Lake? If your data is going to be analyzed later on and most data usually is uh you know whether it's log data iot data sales data whatever kind of data uh you know today's enterprises um you know almost always will need to uh, do some analysis on the data that they that they either ingest or, cre or generate themselves uh you know adls gen 2 or azure data lake storage gen 2 is the place to put it uh, azure data lake storage gen 2 is essentially a set of capabilities on top of blob storage right blob storage has been around since the beginning of azure uh so what's that like 13 some odd years now and and essentially, ADLS Gen two is um, is is a set of capabilities that sit on top of Blob Storage, right? It gives you hierarchical namespace, gives you file system, gives you sort of ACLs, you know, and, and granular um, granular security controls, and a bunch of other stuff. And uh, like so, these days, like so you, you mentioned, it was like, yeah, like if people don't know Azure Storage, like it's everywhere. It's used on all other services. It's hidden if it's not visible. So right. like it's super hold. So what's happening these days with, you know, in the data lake world? Yeah. It, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's actually a very exciting time. You know, data lakes are in, in sort of the lake house architecture or pattern is, is becoming very, very mainstream. You know, uh, customers are voting with their wallet, as my father, as my accountant father would say. Uh, you know, oftentimes these customers are, 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 are um, becoming um, very, very, how should I say, they are becoming 
uh, aware of of the sort of the of the cloud scale that mm-hmm. cloud platforms provide them, and 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 but yet they are you know and they want to take advantage of that, so they're often migrating from on prem. And usually, what happens when they migrate from on prem is they're either coming from say a traditional Hadoop environment or a uh, or a data warehouse, for example, and and either you know they they look at a data lake and they say, oh man, I want I want ubiquitous data access irrespective of which tool or analytics tool I might want to use over that data or, oh, wow, that's very cost effective. We could save a bunch of money, um, not by switching to Geico, but by actually switching to a lake house or a data lake environment um, versus, you know, a, a more expensive, uh, you know, data warehouse, right? I mean, we're what we're talking about, we're talking, we're not talking about maybe, you know, 100 terabytes, we're talking about petabytes, right? And some customers are in that exabyte level of data, trying to implement a data warehouse over petabytes of data is going to be prohibitively expensive for most organizations. So, you know, this is why customers are, you know, we're seeing customers picking, you know, and choosing a, a data lake or in a, in a lake house architecture to, um, you know, as, as their, as their next home, you know, and sort of the base, the fundamental to their, to their analytics, um, you know, solution and, in, in, uh, in the cloud, in this case, Azure land. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's very, very exciting times, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm so excited brilliant so, so again like is there best practices for us who would like to get started on that uh, azure data lake yeah you know i wanted to spend i wanted to spend this time with you and 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 the lovely audience talking about sort of like you know what we have some of the more common questions and patterns as well as some anti-patterns that that we have seen, we in the product group have seen here in the last, um, you know, last few years since AWS Gen Two has been around, um, and and yeah, you know, we kind of kind of dive into that. You know, we've you've got a bunch of other you know demos lined up in this in the session, so you know I'll I'll leave it to those I'll leave it to those folks to uh, to drive that. So <clears throat> some of the most usually where we start when uh, when we have a conversation with the uh, you know the field or with the customers is like or usually the first question we get is, is how should I be organizing my data? Where, where should I be, um, you know, how should I structure my lake? And, you know, there's a bunch of other questions and we've, we've actually created, and before I dive into that, let me, let me show you like what we've built, right? Some of these common questions uh, we've actually, we've actually consolidated them and we've created what we call the hitchhiker's guide to, to, to data lake or to Azure data lake storage Gen 2. Mm-hmm. And this, in this guide is, you know, I'll kind of, we'll, I'll show you some of the, some of the interesting parts in here. This was actually created in conjunction with uh, some of our uh, more prominent uh, folks in the field who have been working, you know, on the ground alongside the customers uh, who are building their, you know, sort of data lake based uh, analytic solution, you know, on top of AWS Gen 2, right? So these are, these are basically real questions from, from real people. And, 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 uh, you know, they weren't sort of thought up, thought of in, an, in a vacuum with, uh, you know, within, you know, product group land itself. So very, very relevant, especially if you're, you know, a customer or someone in the field trying to help a customer on the ground. Uh, so as I was saying on that, on that, Going back to that first uh, that first topic is you know how do I how do I organize my data, right or 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 should I even more high level from that how should I be organizing my data? You need to be thinking about either a centralized hub and spoke model or a federated model. Um, a lot of times this is going to be this is going to be uh, predicated on 
what sort of regulatory requirements and data privacy requirements that you have. Uh, so we have a section in here, we, along with some of the considerations. I uh, should totally check those out. Another, another thing that you want to, uh, folks often ask is, uh, how should I manage access? Uh, as with Azure Storage being around for a long time, you've got, you know, you've got the options, you've got the same options that you would have in normal Azure Storage. But then, you know, with ADList Gen 2, we've added, you know, these granular, you know, ACLs or, uh, that you would typically get in a Hadoop environment or a file system environment. Um, and there are some, some do's and don'ts with this, you know, things like, you know, when should you be using, you know, role-based access control versus ACLs? Uh, and as well as sort of the, the you know, it's the benefits and trade-offs of, you know, one option versus the other, right? Um, and real quick, let me kind of just drive into some of the other things like data format. That's off, that is, that is a, such a common question. What data format should I choose? Honestly, I like to keep it really, really simple, um, really simple, stupid, right? Like, uh, you know, oftentimes your raw data, your data is ingested, it's going to be in like, you know, row, row format, like JSON, XML, CSVs, and so on. Uh, that data is probably going to land in a raw zone or, a, a, you know, sort of a staging zone anyway. You know, uh, you're going to probably convert that format to a column-based format. Which one? You know, you've got options, right? you got ORC, Parquet, Delta, and, and, and one or two others. Uh, at this point, it's like, well, what's going to be your tool of choice, right? So, so much information, Jeff. I need to stop you. The time is flying. We'll make sure to share awesome. this this uh, gold mine in the show notes. Thank you for awesome. your time. Thank you. Thank you. Great. It's been a pleasure. The unstoppable Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Cringing. <laughs> We still have a few minutes for questions. So I see a question in the chat. So uh, it's a long question. So I will try to uh, read it correctly. Sure. Okay. So uh, it's about the life cycle, life cycle uh, policies with premium, premium tier for Azure Data Lake storage. Is there a roadmap for having life cycle on premium? Yes. Uh, so that's it. So the question, the person who's asking is probably alluding to the fact that premium if you set up ADLS Gen 2 and, you know, in premium, so premium ADLS Gen 2, uh, you, you're unable to automatically tier down to a, you know, to a hot or cool or cold tier or even archive tier. Um, and instead, you have to set up a different account. So we're actually planning to close that gap in, uh, in, the, very, in the very, very near future. So uh, stay tuned for that. Yeah. So, um, Sorry. <laughs> I was reading, the, reading the chat, and I'm, I'm, I'm apparently I'm bad doing multitask. Do you have any question, uh, Amy, for us? Yeah, so I think there was a, there was one. Jeff, can you just double check, clarify for us? Storage Gen Two. What does that mean if people have been in the Azure space for quite a while and they might have seen other names? Right. Yeah. So, uh, in order to be a Gen Two, there has to be a Gen One. Uh, and so when uh, before ADLS Gen 2, there was just Azure Data Lake Store, and that was a separate service. And what we've, what we've done is we've essentially evolved that service to, uh, to, to essentially be built on top of blob storage, taking the advantages of, of, of what blob storage you know, has, has been bringing in terms of it's, you know, it's in every region, uh, it's cost effective, uh, you know, it's rich with features, so on and so on. Uh, and then, um, and essentially, we took the the benefits of ADLS Gen One, uh, you know, hierarchical namespace, uh, support for you know big data, you know, workloads, things like that, and and put that 
you know, on top of blob storage essentially. And that's, and that's what you have, um, you know, this AWS Gen 2, right? Azure Data Lake Storage Gen 2. Wonderful. Thank you. Yep. Uh, Jeff will continue to be all along for the show in the chat. So if you have more questions, ask him. He's over there waiting for you. But now, Amy, who's coming next? I think it's Vincent. Yeah, we have Vincent with Azure Data Explorer. So, hey, Vincent, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How about you? Oh, good, good, good. We, so we've just heard all about Data Lake. On to Azure Data Explorer. I know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who, who are you in the Azure Data Explorer world? So I'm a program manager on the uh, Azure Data Explorer team. I do, um, I do focus on the developer experience of uh, the Azure Data Explorer. So the way that the developer will interact with the platform and then will automate everything from deployment Testing and uh, monitoring uh, monitoring tests uh, during the runtime, uh, but otherwise I do speak to a lot of customers uh, across the world to uh, yeah to make sure that they have a great experience with the product. Great stuff! That sounds awesome. And um, well, you also met with Frank and gave us a really good explanation of Azure Data Explorer. So let's take a look at that. Great, Vincent. What is Data Azure Data Explorer? Azure Data Explorer or ADX is an analytics database. So analytics database means that uh, it's not a transactional database, it means it's something that you use to analyze your data instead of storing your data as a master of records. So ADX is an analytics database. Uh, something special about ADX, it excels in time series and uh, searching text or unstructured data. So it can support Structured data, like which is your typical schema, schematized data, uh, semi-structured data like JSON, and unstructured data like text. You can pass text uh, along. Uh, it can scale to petabytes of data and can return a result of a query within seconds or even under a second sometimes. So it unbelievably is fast, and it's uh, it's able to do that because it compresses the data automatically and it indexes the data automatically. Oh, that's cool. And uh, what's the query language? Is it SQL? No, it's uh, Cousteau. So uh, Cousteau in the, uh, as an homage to Jacques-Yves Cousteau, the French uh, sea explorer. So mm -hmm. data explorers to explore your data. We have Cousteau as the uh, query language. Uh, let me show it to you, actually, instead of. Yeah, let's bring your screen. So here I have, here I have, uh, that's called the web UI for uh, Data Explorer. Okay. I have a database. It's a demo. It's a demo database with a GitHub um, data set. So the first thing I'm going to do is to do a count. So this is Custo. I start with a table name and then I do pipe and I do operators on that data. And I can do multiple operators. It's like a data flow. It's a data flow model. So yeah, I counted the number of. Uh, uh, of rows I have in my tables, it's one billion rows. It's about three terabytes of data, the data set, if we would look under under the hoods of that database. If I look at the table, I could do a limit tens, that's like a top 10 in, uh, in SQL. And you can see I have a couple of fields, I have integers, a string type, then I have some field in, um, in JSON, and some more fields. So something I would like to show you is I can go actually inside the, um, the semi-structured data or the JSON field and, and the repo column. I'm going to go and mm -hmm. set the name. 
So I'm going to say, okay, GitHub project is like a select. So I'm projecting just a name. So I'm taking repo.name. So I'm going inside that field, taking that name. Uh, then I take the result of that, which is going to be just one column name with all the names for each row. And I'm going to filter for the name that has Custo in it. So to detect the repo name that has Custo in it, I'm going to select only a distinct simple, uh, data set of those names. And finally, I'm going to order it by name. So if I run that query, you see it runs very fast, 0.2 seconds, and gives me uh, 38 records with all the repos inside GitHub that has Custo. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Uh, so, and, and honestly, like uh, I'm familiar with SQL and KQL, Custo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's very, it, it seems very simple. So, the question of the day is where should I put my data? So, can you tell me where Azure Data Explorer shine the most? Like, for what kind of data should I use it? Yeah. So, the perfect scenario for Azure Data Explorer are logs, telemetry, and time series. So any type of data that is happen only. So telemetry, like IoT devices, telemetry, is data that will keep coming in, maybe at a very rapid pace. But it's not something that you will go back and edit and do an update on, on the data. And those create time series that you want to analyze in the, in the future. And typically, you're interested in the, the latest uh, data. So maybe you're interested in the last hour of data, or you're interested in last day, last uh, last day, last day, last week, last month. But uh, you're interested in that time window that's most recent. So that's the that's the best case um, scenario for uh, ADX. This is where it's most performant and useful. Okay. And like you show us some queries earlier. So can I save those? So like or like is can I and can I interact with code with, with that? Can I run automatically some queries? Yeah, so uh, the, in the tool I show you, the web UI, uh, you can uh, it actually will remember your query. So it's uh, oh, working with nice. cookies and it will remember that. There's a desktop tool that's called uh, Custo uh, Data, Data Explorer. It's, um, so it's a smart client running on Windows and you can save the queries in there. So there are many ways to uh, process your queries. And, uh, Wonderful. So I will make sure to, to put all the connections inside the, our show notes so people can find those and like open it straight from the web or download them and install them. That's cool. For sure. And we even have, uh, I'll, I'll share a link with you that uh, you can actually uh, learn Crystal. By the way, Crystal, you can learn. I learned it in two hours on a Friday afternoon. And there's a documentation where you can click and you can actually interact with the sample database without signing in for anything. So I love that. I love that. Yeah, let's put that in the show notes. And yeah. um, so I can interact with that with my app because there is API, how all that works. Yeah, so to integrate, if you would like to integrate an application, you can go with the REST API like many or all uh, Azure services are APIs available. And our layer of SDK built on top of those APIs. So we support five languages. We support uh, C Sharp, Java, Python, Node, and Go. So we have SDK that you can interact for either ingesting data or um, querying the data. So people will do that. Very often, what we see, they will expose like a search um, of their data in an application. So instead of uh, exposing directly, uh, the, the query experience that I showed you, they will expose like an advanced search. For instance, you can type uh, some text and find some things, and the, the application will translate that into a query. 
The second biggest uh, integration we see with applications with dashboards. So as I mentioned, Husto is really good for um, telemetry data. So very often we'll want to have dashboards to show what's going on with our operations, basically. Wow, wonderful. You know what? I, I need to start digging into that. Thank you a lot for your information. Thank you for your time, Frank. That was cool. That was cool. We are a big user of uh, of Custo and all those tools internally at Hello World. So very happy to have you on the show. Right. Pat is in fire. So let's jump right to it. So I have um, Madhu that is asking. Um, they're like, in fact, they're saying they're blocked right now with ADX DevOps compatibility. And they would like to know, do you have any roadmap with uh, DevOps features? Yeah, so I don't know what uh, specifically they're referring to. If they want to contact me on LinkedIn, please do so. I, what I can tell you is that uh, we're investing heavily right now to improve the deployment of uh, ADX so to make sure that you have an experience end-to-end -end for both uh, ARM templates and Terraform so you can deploy all the way from your ADX cluster to the actual database and tables and all these schema objects. So we'll have that uh, this semester, so the next, uh, next six months. Uh, we also invest in the uh, testing so that we can do unit testing for uh, ADX. So I can't give any specifics right now because we just started to de design that part, but uh, that's quite an exciting time to come. So there's lots of investment coming down the way for uh, DevOps and data ops. Awesome. Cool. Thanks. That's really, really good. Speaking of using Azure Data Explorer, um, so in Azure Data Explorer, we should we you showed us you were kind of writing those queries, mm -hmm. and that was calling into a database. How does clusters, databases, tables kind of break down in in Custo? Sure. So Custo uh, is a scale out architecture. So it's uh, multiple VMs under the hood. You don't manage the VMs. You don't see them but it's a cluster. So it's a cluster of multiple uh, VMs and you can scale it out, scale it in, change the change the skew of the of the VM. Um, so a cluster has multiple databases or potentially multiple databases and each database will have multiple tables. So that's the hierarchy. This is from cluster to database to tables and each tables will have multiple columns and rows for sure. And uh, so that's how you can do it. You can, uh, so then you can play with the security. For instance, you can have databases for different departments in your company. We see some customers doing multi-tenant uh, scenarios where they get, uh, they'll have a database per customer, for instance. You can play with the security like that. And uh, you can, or you can do, you can share the data as well. You can do cross query between uh, databases. There's no penalty to do that. Amazing. Yeah, I was going to say when I first went in there and I, I kept using all the wrong terminology, I kept saying like, oh, the database, the database, but I actually met a table or something like that. So thank you for explaining that one for us. My uh, Our next question actually is more around, so uh, I love a query. Um, I really enjoy spending a lot of time in Azure Data Explorer uh, with the queries, but when a lot of people don't want to be in that kind of view, how does it connect to visualizations and stuff like that? What are our options? Yeah, so I think I didn't demonstrate that in the uh, video that I uh, we showed with Frank. You could actually integrate visuals within the queries. At the end of a query, you can always say uh, pipe, render, uh, column chart, or different, uh, different types of chart. We support, so right in the Explorer, you can actually do visualization. Otherwise, 
you can, it integrates with a bunch of different tools like Power BI, Tableau, Grafana, so you can export or visualize your data to, using third parties or first party uh, tools to, to do dashboards on, on graphs. Wonderful. That's a good cool. Amy, I think if we need to move on, there was a lot of a uh, question going on, but uh, let's bring uh, the next guess who it is. Sure. So up next, we have Mark. Mark is from Cosmos DB. In case we can't see his animated gift. <laughs> <laughs> like Welcome, that. Mark. Welcome, Mark. Uh, tell us, tell us a bit more about who you are, what you do at Microsoft. Yeah, I'm Mark Brown. I'm a program manager on the Cosmos DB team. Uh, I do a couple of different things. I uh, manage all of our resource provider APIs. So that's kind of the control and management plane. Uh, so any ARM templates, PowerShell, CLI, BICEP, uh, all that stuff uh, is what I own. Uh, I also uh, focus a lot on our outbound and community uh, efforts. Uh, I run a weekly podcast as well. Uh, you can come check me out on uh, gotcosmos.com slash TV uh, every Thursday. Nice. We do always like to offer people other things to go do. Uh, maybe we can cross promote. You call out Hello World next time. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> but yeah, thanking you on my show. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yes, we would love to. Um, but if you want to go and check out that podcast in the show notes uh, just below. But Mark, just as with our other uh, experts on the show today, you got a chance to chat with Frank earlier in the week. So let's take a look at that video, and we'll be back for Q and A. Sounds good. Mark, how CosmoDB is different than other databases? So Cosmos is different in a couple of different ways. Uh, first is Cosmos is a scale-out database. We're horizontally scalable. So unlike, say, a relational database where you're going to scale up by increasing the size of your VM, in Cosmos, you just keep adding additional nodes or compute or partitions, we call them, uh, and you get additional size in that. And this is great because it does provide unlimited storage capacity and theoretically unlimited because you can just keep adding different uh, uh, pieces of compute. Uh, the other thing it does too is uh, because each of these pieces of compute can process requests, uh, you get unlimited throughput uh, as well for, uh, for your databases in Cosmos. Uh, the other big difference too for us is Cosmos is non-relational. Uh, we don't put locks on your data. So we're not going to lock a piece of data to read or write from it. Uh, we don't enforce relational constraints, foreign keys, any of that stuff. Uh, and the reason is because uh, we're really designed for kind of that high performance uh, kind of uh, scenario. So we don't want to put locks on data. The other thing, too, is because we have our, we're a scale out, you would have to put distributed locks across these different uh, nodes or partitions. Uh, and that's just not good from a performance or, or availability standpoint. Um, speaking of which, so because we have this you know, scale-out thing, as I mentioned before, so we scale out uh, and add different nodes in there. Uh, we call those partitions uh, within Cosmos DB. And so the way you see this is when you create a new uh, collection or container in Cosmos DB is you specify uh, the partition key. And this basically helps us route the data, whether you're writing data or you're reading data. Like here, I've got one that's username of Andrew. Uh, excuse me, uh, uh, partition key of username. So if I want to write data to my Andrew partition, I include that in there or the Mark one or the Tim there or the Tim one there. Uh, and then on the read path, uh, it's important then I want to use that partition key when I'm trying to find my data. So here I've got this query, select star where C username equals Mark, uh, and that's our partition key. So when I pass in that value, I know exactly where to go and get the data. Uh, and this allows you to write 
uh, really high performance queries uh, within Cosmos DB. So that's kind of the, the big difference is that, that horizontally scalable and non-relational. Oh, okay, so now I know why it's different, but why, why would I care? Why should I pick Cosmo instead of something else? Sure, so that, that kind of horizontal scalability allows us to have a high amount of elasticity uh, with your throughput, right? Because we can just keep adding nodes uh, and adding more throughput, more storage to your account. Uh, in fact, we can do this with no downtime. So you just increase the throughput on there. We'll go behind the scenes and increase the amount of storage and throughput uh, that you can handle within there. Uh, we're also uh, a regional or multi-region uh, database. So we can replicate data into any region in Azure uh, and then make that available uh, to serve reads. Uh, and we do that and maintain the consistency of that data uh, across any and all regions. Uh, the nice thing too is because we're multi-regional, we can survive regional events. So we can provide higher availability than say if your database was just one in, uh, in, a, in a single region. Uh, also, even within a region, we have multiple copies of your data. So we have what's called a replica set in Cosmos and we write your data four different times uh, within that region. Uh, we maintain a quorum over that data. So we'll maintain a three quorum, a replica quorum that data. So if one of the replicas uh, happens to have an issue, that's okay. We can maintain the availability and still read and write data in and out of your account uh, while we get another replica uh, filled in its place. Lastly, we can also co-locate these in availability zones, uh, which is great because now you can survive, say, a zonal outage uh, if that happened within a region um, uh, as well. So we're really built for kind of that elasticity, that availability, uh, and that high write volume uh, within uh, for your for for workloads. Very interesting. Okay, so. Now we know why we should care and everything. Could you help us uh, like by giving us like in two minutes or uh, about different scenario where like CosmoDB will be a good fit? Yeah, of course. Uh, we see lots of different workloads where they want one of those three different characteristics, whether it's the elasticity, the availability, uh, or that high write volume. Uh, IoT workloads is a good scenario where we're uh, ingesting large volumes of device telemetry. Uh, and that's great because you can just provision more throughput and ingest more and more data. Uh, another one is e-commerce, uh, and they love us because of that scale, uh, because they can quickly scale up if they need. Also, e-commerce, uh, uh, they really value availability, right? Like there's nothing more painful or costly than if you can't sell anything. Uh, so having a database that can maintain high availability is uh, important for them. Uh, manufacturing is another one. Uh, they use us for parts list, uh, supply chain, uh, financial services, particularly payment uh, processing is another huge uh, scenario for us, both from elasticity and scale and availability. Um, anything where a document would make sense for storage uh, is a workload that we see usage. Uh, also, uh, workloads where uh, maybe the schema uh, is quickly evolving or maybe where there is no real schema uh, is enough. There are workloads where you see uh, people using Cosmos. Yeah, because, because of that flexibility it's easier to adjust. Right, we don't, so that's the that fundamental difference of non-relational. We don't enforce schema at the database level. You enforce it at the app level. And also there's many different APIs. So different, like as a developer, like I could use many different way to communicate to CosmoDB, am I right? That's correct. We're multi-model, so we have our own core, what we call SQL API. It's a SQL flavor uh, over JSON data, uh, but we also have Support for MongoDB, uh, Gremlin, Cassandra, uh, even the old uh, table storage. Uh, we have support for that as well. 
the old. The old. It's been around for a long time. Yeah, I know what you mean. I just, you know, it's the old, old. Sorry, I don't mean to disparage my table. <laughs> but okay, perfect. Thank you. So you know what? Let's see what the the chat has uh, for question. Thank you for your time. You bet. <laughs> I was still laughing. <laughs> the old. Uh, I didn't see any question yet uh, in the in the chat. So if you're there, feel free to uh, to chat with them, ask them question, provide feedback on your experience. Those PM are there for you for the entire hour. So feel free to reach out in the chat. They're there. They're just waiting for your question. But Mark, I have one question because sure. I know it's a very important first step when you start with Cosmo and is your partition. So like, you know, I, I, I know that let's say last name is not a good way to partition, but I don't know, like does the date is a good one? Or like, how, how do I know what the Yeah, interesting. Is? So I get, we see this question a lot. And it's a fair question uh, and as people are trying to wrap their heads around how partitioning works, but consider if you use date uh, as a partition key, uh, if you have a, uh, an application that's write heavy and it's writing the current date all the time and you're partitioning by date, you're going to get a hot partition. Like all the data is going to want to write to a single partition. And that's actually something you really want to avoid in a database like Cosmos. You provision all of this throughput. We create all of these physical partitions behind the scenes that are there to serve read and write requests. The, the idea there is when you provision that throughput, we spread it evenly across all those partitions. So you want to spread the load across them. Uh, so in a, in a write heavy workload, data is actually not a very good uh, partition key. You want to find something else to help spread those writes out across as many partitions as you possibly can so that you can avoid that hot partition. It basically acts like a bottleneck. Yeah. But maybe you want to clarify because I, I know because I learned it myself trying the, the last name, but why like a last name or a first name won't also be a good idea most of the time? Uh, well, that depends. <laughs> I mean, if you were uh, last name. Um, because well, most clutter if, will, will, will get clutter and other will be empty. Sure. So, I mean, if you were using like a letter or something like that, uh, the first letter of their name, um, you know, your X partition probably going to be, or Z or Y probably going to be relatively empty and other letters with, you know, where you have more names, uh, are going to be busier. Uh, another one that wouldn't work well either is, uh, maybe zip code. Uh, some zip codes may have higher density of people uh than other zip codes um it, i mean it, here's the thing it comes down to what is your workload and how does it behave and understanding the access patterns to your data that really at the end of the day is what should drive or inform uh what your partition strategy should be and understanding how does how do customers or users interact with that data how are they writing data what data are they writing what frequency do they write it uh how do they read it um and then just you have to understand that volume there's really in a sense, it's, uh, you know, from a write-heavy pr uh, perspective, you want to spread that load across as many partitions as possible. But on the flip side, for a read-heavy workload, you want to serve queries from as few partitions as possible. Uh, whereas in the write, you want to spread that load across as many partitions as you can. Uh, on the read path, you want to avoid the what we call a fan-out, which is having to hit every partition to go find your data. You want to hit with either one or a bounded set of partitions. Uh, on, on on the read path. Awesome. Thank you. 
Okay, I think lots and lots of reading. Obviously, Azure Cosmos DB Docs is a very, very good place also to go. And um, I know, Mark, you you explain a lot of these concepts in there. I've spent a little bit of time in there myself. One of the ones, um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Mark, was um, you mentioned you replicate like a lot. It was like four times in one region. And obviously, it, you know, a Cosmos DB is naturally highly available. But how does data stay consistent? Right. So with Cosmos, because we're a distributed data store and we replicate data across regions, uh, we have what we call consistency policies. Um, and this governs essentially how data is replicated or, or copied or persisted uh, into remote regions. Um, there's And there's two kind of different flavors. Well, there's multiple flavors of that. We have five different consistency policies. Uh, there's strong consistency. Uh, which is synchronous replication. So before data can be act or committed, it has to be copied or replicated into every other region that you're replicating into, committed there, and then act back. Um, the, and then we have what's asynchronous replication, uh, and there's four flavors of that. Uh, and that happens uh, based, well, depending on how the what the consistency policy guarantees are. So there's one called bounded staleness that has as the name implies, it's bounded in terms of staleness. It's usually a period of time or a number of writes or updates. Um, there's also a consistent prefix, uh, which is more relaxed, but all the writes are done in order or reads you see in the order they were written. <clears throat> and then there's an eventual consistency, which is the most relaxed. And you don't, there's no guarantees on any of the orders. Um, the trade-off here is you get increasing levels of throughput, the more relaxed the consistency is. Um, strong is is the worst in terms of throughput uh, and also in terms of latency um, because you have to replicate over long distances over a WAN and the speed of light becomes an issue. Uh, and I saw a question in here about CAP theorem uh, earlier. That's uh, absolutely comes into play uh, with a distributed yeah. data store. You have to make these trade-offs uh, when you're either want consistent data, you have to give up availability. Uh, if you want availability, you have to give up consistency. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, let's continue that conversation on the chat because we need to move on. We still have a lot of content. I want to share. Uh, so the other day I did a call with Scott Semfield where he was doing, demoing me some super crazy demo about the robot. So I want you to see that. Let's run the video. Hey, Scott, how are you? Hey, Frank, it's been a while. Yeah, indeed. Very uh, happy to see you. Yeah, likewise. Um, you caught me kind of heads down working on this 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 demo. I mean, literally, really. <laughs> um, uh, I do. I'm dying to show you. This is what um, I'm showing next week on Tuesday, September 28th. Oh, and excellent! I would love to give you a sneak preview of it. Yeah. Okay. Nothing. Nothing is breaking yet, so it won't be my fault. Yes. Yes. I, I think everything's working right now. Um, it is another robot uh, and people, and but the reason why it's another robot will become clear in just a moment. So uh, I'm going to swing the camera around to it. Let me show you. Okay. We'll just dive right into it. So yeah. let me grab this and move it down here. So this is a little device called the uh, Kwanzaa cube and it's, mm -hmm. um, it's kind of wild. It's uh I've had one. I've had this for for quite a while, and we just recent recently kind of brought it out of retirement too, because it perfectly illustrates a few of the new concepts that we're launching or demonstrating next week. Um, so again, 
at 11 a.m. Pacific next week. We have a long demo set up on September 28th. And we have new features in Project Bonsai that are going to make this thing do uh, this. And I'm running it now. And that. Okay, good. Oh, good. that's cool. Yeah, totally worked. So I, I want to explain why this is why this is doing, why it's working. Uh, let me put let me put something behind it so it's a little bit easier to uh, see the bar. And this will become clear in a moment. And, and I, I don't see it moving, but I'm assuming it is, right? Yes. In fact, it's, well, if I knock it hard enough, now it's going to start over. Ah, there we go. Okay. So okay, that's cool. This is a really interesting space because in order to keep this thing upright, it's making decisions at a very high rate of speed. And it's deciding how to move this thing in order to keep it upright. And so, so let me go backwards and tell you really what we're looking at. So I have this other camera that's pointing top down. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take this top thing off just to explain it. So we have here a this cube. It's great, a great name, the Kwanzer Cube. It's from a company called Kwanzer, and they're out of Canada. And they make devices that are used to teach mechanical engineering concepts to students in university. And this particular one, uh, it comes with an entire Simulink coursework um, for mechanical engineers that run simulators and learn how to do things like balance as one of its many skills. This is this may be something they would see now, but to understand this as a robot, just imagine it's controlled over USB and that we're simply telling it to either go spin clockwise or counterclockwise. And you tell it that by providing a voltage somewhere between three volts or negative three volts. And that determines the, the rate of the rate of spin. OK, mm -hmm. now this looks like a motor. This this looks like a motor, but it's not. This is an optical encoder. This is a passive device that it knows the exact position of this aluminum shaft. And at the end of the shaft is this weight. So we really have a pendulum, like on a clock. And with these four magnets, I can make an attachment directly to the motor. So we have this interesting problem in that, well, let me, let me try to do this by hand and you'll see, this is really difficult to do. The idea is just if you move this left and right, can you move it in such a way that it spins, well, eventually gets, um, well, I can tell you that I can't do this. A human can't do this. Whereas like Moab, you could maybe with a joystick, move it back and forth to get it to stand upright. So by putting this on here, it receives the state of the, 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 the arm in a variable called alpha. It gets the state of the arm and says, okay, well, what do I need to do to get it to stand nearly upright? But once I'm upright, what do I have to do to, to keep it steady? And that's something, that's a feature that we added um, fairly recently that we'd like to show more on the 8th. It's called multi-concepts, and we do this whole thing with something called visual editing. And so you'll see that this is really a two-step process. You have to first get close enough to standing upright, and then you move into a different mode of control. So it's, again, it's kind of controls-based, but the same technology is used all over our use cases in Project Bonsai. So it's it's yeah, because it's not just a recipe that you could apply, like it changed, right? Because you're tapping it. So like the machine really need to take decision. This is really interesting. Yeah. And, and this kind of transition state is fun. It's it's really fun to write code that affects and moves real things. Uh, I can't do this like with a real big industrial machine. This is a lot safer because it's on my desktop. But so yeah, <laughs> we'll show more of that on Tuesday of next week. Wonderful. So we'll, we'll share the link in our show notes. Thank you. Thanks. Hope to see you then. Bye. Bye. That was cool, right?
Whoa. <laughs> I don't know what I was expecting about because I didn't watch it prior to this. There's a little bit of excitement, but that is, um, yeah, that's unreal, isn't it? It's kind of bizarre. I don't know. <laughs> the time is flying. We need to move to our next speaker. So you want to make the intro with me? Sure. Let's welcome our final expert, Savine, uh, who's going to talk to us about Azure Synapse. Hey, Savine, how's things going? Doing great. Glad to be here. Yeah, no, thank you for joining us. As you mentioned at the start, you're connecting everything we've already spoke about, basically. And again, you had a chance to spend some time with our wonderful host, Frank, uh, and tell us a little bit about it. So let's see the video, and we'll be back for Q&A. What is Synapse? Well, it's a great question, a common one. Synapse is really all about doing enterprise analytics at scale. If you want to do that in Azure, there's one answer. That is Synapse. So instead of having to pick multiple technologies, which, you know, is challenging yep. for organizations, they really struggle with it. Uh, different analytics engines, different data integration engines can be very complicated. The answer is one thing, Synapse. Okay, I like it. So what's the problem does it solve for your customers? Well, you know, I mentioned just a second ago about having to pick and choose, right? And uh, let's just focus on one aspect of that, analytics engines. Mm -hmm. Now, what we see in the world is people are having to use two different wor worlds of engines, Spark and Data Warehousing, that, you know, T-SQL, SQL. And these are really different worlds, different technologies, different query languages in some cases, uh, different security models, different experiences, differences, differences, differences all over the place. And what we see in organizations, they're doing these enterprise analytic solutions. They're failing often. They're failing because these two technical silos of big data spark and data warehousing SQL don't work well together, right? And because those technologies don't work well together, the organizations themselves silo the teams. In the same organization, we'll see a Spark team and a, a SQL team, essentially, right? Yeah. So, you know, often you'll see us talk about Synapse as limitless. And often, we, when we say that we do mean works at any scale, you know, any size of data. And that is, that is what that means. But it also means erasing limits between these two worlds. We're oh, talking like about not the size of data, but erasing the boundaries so that you can have shared metadata, shared data, a unified security model. Right? A unified coding experience and debugging experience and monitoring experience. All these things are the limits and the boundaries we're removing to make it one solution. That's nice. That's nice. I really like that all together. Um, okay, so what's the most common scenario where people are using or like where Synapse will, will shine? Well, um, you know, the most common thing that people are doing with Synapse is a pattern it's a it's classically known as the modern data warehouse pattern and it's very simple and i've seen it replicated from the smallest organizations to the largest you know from gigabytes to literally petabytes and in some cases exabytes and really it's all about uh, landing data from different sources on premises in the cloud into a lake in the cloud right files then you know you need a data integration system for that and then that data has to become uh, prepared or cooked, as we might say, cleaned up. So that's another stage in this process. And then you start using big data maybe for uh, machine learning, training models, right? So you cook and clean, you train models, 
you do your AI and ML. And then finally, of course, you take that data and you put it in a serving layer. Uh, that's really the data warehousing layer yeah. uh, because then you use normal SQL to serve it to tools like Tableau or Power BI. So that pattern is what Synapse is just built to, you know, out of the box, make possible quickly. And of course, as you can see, that pattern will evolve and, you know, uh, real-time streaming analytics get added. So those kinds of scenarios, that's, that's where the sweet spot is for Synapse. Love that. You know what? You got me hooked. Can we see it? Can you show me a little bit how it works? Absolutely. Absolutely. So let me move over to what you can see now. This is called Synapse Studio, and this is <clears throat> its, uh, its homepage, right? Now, I've got a lot to demo, but the easiest way of understanding what's going on here is that I have a lot of code, and I'm going to access data wherever it is. So I'm going to go to the data hub. And in the data hub, you can see I have workspace data and linked data. And then in the workspace data, I have these databases. And in the linked part of the data hub, I have data sources that are not in Synapse, but somewhere else in Azure. And I'll show you how Synapse just can work with all your data in Azure. Let's start with the workspace data. This is sort of the data that's owned by Synapse. Now, of course, I have a SQL pool, what used to be called a dedicated, uh, a uh, Azure SQL data warehouse. Now we just call them dedicated SQL pools. And in it, I have a classic native SQL table. And just to show you, you know, of course I can do a select top 100 on this and it would just work, right? It's exactly what you'd expect to see in, uh, you know, a system that uses T-SQL to query data, right? And you can see the query was written and it ran. And I'll just close that because that's what the product is supposed to do easily with native T-SQL. But what about Spark databases? Now I have, you can, you can see right here, I have a Spark database and inside the Spark database, there's a Spark table. And this is the same data, but, but this is a Spark table, which means the metadata is now in this Hive compatible Metastore and the data is in Parquet files in the data lake. And I can right click here and take a look. I can of course create a new Spark notebook and that'll load it to a data frame. I'm gonna ignore that for now because everyone's very familiar Spark Notebooks will work with Spark databases. What we've added is native T-SQL compatibility with Spark databases. So I can do a select top 100 rows and it does exactly just pure normal T-SQL on the Spark database and I can run it and it will just kick off and finish this query. You didn't have to do anything. It, would, it will just work, right? Now what you're seeing here is that the SQL query spun up some resources. It took about eight seconds. If I run this second time, It'll just work uh, very quickly now. You can see there, it took a two seconds and it might be zero seconds. It just kind of depends on the day and the time. Uh, that's using our built-in serverless SQL pool engine, right? It's a massive scale, enabling T-SQL analytics on Spark databases. So those are databases inside Synapse. What about, uh, you know, I mentioned, we'll work with your data wherever it is. Let's pick three interesting cases, right? The first is uh, blob storage. And I have another data set in blob storage called the, New, the famous New York City taxicab data. I'm not gonna demo the query uh, because I have the same data also in another storage account over here called in the Azure Data Lake Storage Gen 2. And if I click in here, uh, you can see there's gonna be some files here. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna query those. Now, instead of rewriting all these things, I'm gonna do the right clicks and, and find a file here and create a SQL script or a Spark table. But instead of doing all that, let me just find a pre-built one. And so 
that was a file in a lake, a parquet file. So of course I can uh, just query directly. And this is what the T-SQL looks like. Again, this isn't a Spark database. This is a Spark, uh, sorry, a Parquet file. And I can just run it. And again, it will just go kick off a query. And it, you didn't have to specify the schema. It just worked. It just worked. And likewise, you know, Cosmos DB was another thing we talk about. I have Cosmos DB and I can just do a Spark.read on a Cosmos DB container and then using Synapse link for Cosmos DB, which automatically gets data from the Cosmos DB transactional store in an analytics store, it just works in Synapse. So wherever your data is, Synapse can use it. I love it. Very clear. Thank you for your explanation. That was super cool. I love it. Uh, we share tons of information today, and I, I forgot to mention because I was kind of in the moment, but we have in the show notes, learning path, learning module for you all in the show notes. So the link that's shown in, uh, in the bottom of your screen where you could start learning. Uh, very interesting. Amy, any questions that we have? I'm not sure we have too many questions in the chat, but as you know, our speakers are here with us to answer your questions. If you don't ask them, I'll ask them. So uh, Sabine, I do actually have a question for you. Um, should, obviously with data and all these different data stores, there's a lot of work that goes into getting data into those things, so data integration. How does that work with, with Azure Synapse and obviously Azure Data Factory? How, how, how would you choose between these things? Well, you picked a really popular question. Let's start with a the fundamental thing everyone needs to understand is that, you know, we have these two products, Azure Data Factory, uh, Azure Synapse Analytics. They share a common data integration engine, right? So the same, literally the same code that's in Azure Data Factory that does pipelines and data flows is the same code that's in Synapse, right? So one, one piece of technology that's in both places packaged a little differently. Uh, so now the question is that you know sort of how they relate. And there are a few differences. Sometimes Synapse has more stringent security requirements. So it takes a little longer for a feature to appear in Synapse. But our long-term roadmap is whatever's in Azure Data Factory is in Synapse. And finally, which one should you pick? If you're someone who's never done data integration before, like it's you know, your day zero and you don't already using, you're not already using Data Factory, just use Synapse. It doesn't cost you anymore. It, it gives you even more down the road. And we think that's the right answer. If you're someone who's already got Data Factory or you're really using SSIS and all these ETL tools and you really don't care about analytics so much as you're just doing standard kind of data movement, then ADF is a great place for you, right? I, I hope that clarifies it. Thank you. The time is flying. Thank you all. So in the description in the show note, I put the link to all those people so you can reach out and continue the conversation or just leave a comment. And for me, I will see you tomorrow for another episode of Hello World. Bye, everybody. And everyone's there. Bye, Excellent. Everyone. Even better. <laughs> <There you go. laughs>